Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games is the best place to get MTGA arena codes. From booster packs to awesome cosmetics, check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT for 10% off. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black. Welcome to Drafting Archetypes. Today we are going to be discussing Demir slash Learning Curves in Strixhaven. This is uh, not one of the stated archetypes in this format, uh, not one of the supported color pairs. Uh, Demir is not one of the colleges of Strixhaven. So I think the first question that leads to is why Demir? And so I figured I should probably start by addressing that. The answer is I basically got here by identifying what I consider to be the problems with Prismari, specifically the problems with Prismari as a control deck, which is that the red cards are bad. Basically, that's it. That's that's the whole story. The red cards don't do what you're trying to do in a control deck. Specifically, the red removal doesn't answer a lot of the important threats in this format. And by a lot of the important threats in this format, I'm referring to specifically fractals. The fact that Serpentine Curve and Leyline Invocation and Fractal Summoning all make creatures that are larger than the red removal can interact with causes a lot of problems for Prismari if you don't find basically exactly Varian books. That was okay when Varian books was going too late and you could somehow get two or three of them per draft or whatever, but now that the data is out and people know that Varian books is roughly the best common, it's very easy to have a Prismari deck where you just don't get any. And then your red removal can keep you alive for a while, but you run into these problems where there just aren't cards in your deck that deal with the threats that your opponent plays, which doesn't mean that Prismari is impossible to draft or impossible to have success with, but it does mean that Prismari wants to play not as much of a controlling role a lot of the time. It wants to focus on kind of turning the corner and ending the game, which, I mean, it makes a lot of sense that Prismari Apprentice is what it is, that it's a 2-2 that becomes unblockable and grows when you play big spells. That kind of tells you you're supposed to be trying to end the game with your Prismari deck. This is a blue-red deck. The, the red says, you know, get them. That's why there are the flyers that give you discounts on casting your big spells. The flyers that are to apply some pressure, let you play your big spells ahead of time so that you can use these like seven mana plays more aggressively. That's all well and good if you're the sort of player who likes to attack with your blue-red decks. But I'm not that sort of player. Uh, when I'm playing blue, I like to draw cards and I like to interact with my opponent's cards and I just want to get control. A lot of what draws me into drafting Prismari is uh, Rutha specifically, uh, the one for that can return to your hand to copy spells, which really just the longer the game goes, the further ahead Rutha pulls you. It's really best if you're just all removal spells and interaction and stuff. Since that was what was putting me into blue-red rather than like Maelstrom Muse and Prismari Apprentice and these more aggressive cards, I found myself struggling with things that I couldn't answer. And so I tried to find a solution to that problem. Turns out black is great. Black has all of the best removal spells outside of Baryan books and a great mix of removal spells that line up differently against 
different threats at different points in the curve in ways that you're looking for. Like black has Lash of Malice at common, where red does have essentially the same effect in shock, but it's uncommon and it's much harder to find. It's a higher priority for the red decks because their only version of that card is an uncommon, where another black drafter at the table might already have enough Lash of Malices, the other red players are desperate for shock. You know, once you move up a little bit, you get Mage Hunter's Onslaught, which is kind of in a similar space as Pigment Storm, except Mage Hunter's Onslaught actually kills the big stuff, whereas Pigment Storm kills a little bit bigger than Heated Debate, but only a little bit bigger, and it doesn't interact with those big fractals that I'm so concerned about. And so for less mana, Mage Hunter's Onslaught has a better effect for what I'm looking for than uh, Pigment Storm. Going over that, you also get Rise of Extus, which on top of answering anything, including a number of threats that, that are important to exile, Pilgrim of the Ages, Bookworm, Brackish Trudge, these cards that can come back from the graveyard. So on top of cleanly answering those, it also learns. So you get this like removal plus card advantage card, which is just amazing. And so the black removal is way better than the red removal. Heated Debate's a really good card, but it just doesn't answer enough things. I'd rather fill the role that it fills with Lash of Malice and then have the larger black removal. The removal is better in black than in red. The common removal is better than the, uh, in black than the red common removal, and you don't get any additional removal from Prismari. There's not like a gold common removal spell that's supplementing the red removal there. So if you're just building a deck out of commons, your blue-black deck gets better removal than your blue-red deck, even though blue-red is a supported college and blue-black isn't. Furthermore, as we should all have seen at this point, learning is really, really important in this format. The more I play... In a lot of ways, the more true that becomes. The fringe learn cards that seemed a little questionable at the beginning, like Cram Session, are actually pretty great. The black cards that learn are way, way better in a control deck than the red cards that learn. Instead of having access to Enthusiastic Study and First Day of Class, Enthusiastic Study being a very aggressive card that can be cast you know, only once you have three mana, and you also want to have a creature that's getting into combat for it to actually generate three mana worth of value. So instead of having that and first day of class, which is basically just bad, but also somewhat aggressive, you get Cram Session and Hunt for Specimens and Rise of Extus. So you both get access to more commons that learn and cheaper and better and more unplanned commons that learn. You have better removal and better lessons in black than in red. There really is nothing about being in red that offers any real competing advantage to that for me outside of, I guess, you get access to a campus. However, if you prioritize environmental sciences, which I do, then the learning that you get from black does more to fix your mana than the campus that you get from being smarty. And so to me, Demir has Better removal, better card advantage, because that's kind of what the lessons are. Better mana, just better everything. So that's why I think Demir is basically just like the better blue control deck than Prismari. Prismari does have, you know, its own strengths, turn the corner, big spells, aggressive thing. But if that's not the way that I'm trying to play the game anyway, then I would rather uh, try to be Demir. That's what got me onto Demir and why I think Demir is the way to accomplish what I'm looking to accomplish with blue cards in this format. What I have found in drafting Demir, all the cards that I like 
are these like removal cards and learn cards. None of them are creatures. The creatures just don't really do what I'm trying to do in this format. Just drafting the cards that I wanted led to a spot where my deck was full of spells, which created the situation where Serpentine Curve was absolutely amazing. It's just incredibly huge as soon as I want to cast it. I can routinely make 4-4 Serpents on turn 4, but if I wait a turn or two, they get bigger. Partially because I'm prioritizing all these learn cards, where not only is every card in my deck is an instant or sorcery that powers curve, but a lot of the cards are two instants and sorceries. I'm getting instants and sorceries in my graveyard that weren't even in my deck from the lessons. That means I'm just regularly making 8, 8, 9, 9, 10, 10, 12, 12, 15, 15 serpents. Serpentine curve is actually what these decks are about. And once I understood that, I started to really prioritize the other cards that support Serpentine Curve exactly, uh, like Curate, which helps find Serpentine Curve and make it bigger, and Teach by Example, which is a card that I'd been really down on. Some people tried to tell me that it was good. I tried playing with it in some Paris Mari decks, and I was like, I don't get it. I can never find a spot to cast this card. It's just clunking up my hand, and it's really awful. I, I don't know why I would ever want, want this. And then I played it in a deck with like three or four Serpentine Curves. Every game on turn six, I would just go like, okay, teach for example, Serpentine Curve. Now I have two seven sevens go. That's really, really, really good. <laughs> the biggest issue with the plan of I'm just going to like draw some cards, interact a bit, play Serpentine Curve is there are answers to a single big thing. Your opponent can play Buried Books. They can play Mage Hunter's Onslaught. They can play an Aether Helix. They, the, you know, they can tap it with Frost Trickster. Like a lot can go wrong when you just make a single large blocker. But if you make two of them, it's a lot more likely that you actually stabilize. Also, just like a Serpentine Curve on turn four is generally a fine body. But if you wait those two turns and play it on turn six, it's generally a really good body. That leads to this spot where if you don't have Teach by Example, on turn six, you're playing one thing to the board. Because like I don't have very many two drops or anything in my deck, and if I did, I would have already played them. So I'm basically just like, here's my one thing, deal with this. And often the opponent's like, okay, I'll deal with that. But if you make two things that turn, you now, instead of playing like a six mana big, big, because it took your entire turn, you're playing two six mana big bigs, or you're playing a two a two mana big big and a four mana big big, and that's just much better at catching you up and stabilizing and turning the corner. So I found Teach by Example to be really important in these decks. If I don't have Teach by Example, I can execute a similar plan using Negate or Test of Talents or Snakeskin Veil, which isn't black, we'll get there, or sometimes even Professor's Warning, where basically... I want to sculpt a game plan where at some point I'm going to make a serpent, and or a fractal technically, and expect my opponent to answer it, but I'm going to invalidate their answer. Either I'm going to make it insufficient by playing two fractals and they can only answer one, or I'm going to counter their attempt to answer my fractal, and that's where the game's going to turn around. I really prioritize having some kind of play to pair with serpentine curve to make sure that my opponent can't stop me from executing this game plan. I know that they're going to be ready to answer my serpentine curve, so I need something to stop them from doing that. That's what I'm building to. So the whole deck is based around building to that sequence on turn five, where it's serpentine curve with snake and veil, or turn six, where it's teach by example serpentine curve or serpentine curve negate, or sometimes even, you know, turn seven, 
teach curve hold up veil or whatever. To get to a spot where I can do that and I'm not dead, the rest of my deck is some curates and pop quizzes and stuff to set it all up, and then every removal spell I can possibly get my hands on. The every removal spell I can possibly get my hands on part is very important. It's not just the premium black removal spells plus Baryan books, it's all the removal. Expel, heated bait, I can put a mage duel in there, doesn't matter. If there's a removal card, I'll take it and I'll find a way to cast it. That's why I often end up saying when people are watching me draft these decks on stream, Demir is a state of mind. Sometimes I end up actually playing black cards. Sometimes I'm base blue-black splashing some other cards. Sometimes black's not open, and I'm just a blue control deck with a variety of removal spells from other colors, and I happen to not have very much black, and that's fine. But the decks all play very similarly, because I'm playing an average of three creatures a draft, taking every removal spell I can and making big serpentine curves. And that's, I think, Demir is the best way to do it. It's really easy to get cut on blue or black because, you know, if someone's in any deck other than Lorehold, they're going to be taking either some of my blue cards or some of my black cards. The black cards that I want are really good. That's the issue. Now that people have realized that Hunt for Specimens and Cram Session are good cards, I'm looking for that and I'm looking for Lash of Malice and I'm looking for Rise of Exodus. Everyone who's black wants those cards. If there's a Silver Quill or Witherbloom drafter in front of me, they're likely taking the black cards that I want. I would like to be black, but if I'm not black, I can make it work with whatever else there is. Uh, Demir is really like the ideal state for this deck, but learning curves can can happen in blue and any other color combination. It's, it's really just about find all the learn cards you can, find all the removal you can, find all the serpentine curves you can. And another thing about this is if you think of yourself from the beginning as being a Demir deck, then you're drafting blue and black cards. But likely you're getting cut on one of those colors. And likely you're not getting cut on both of those colors because it's so likely that people passing to you are in some kind of college and their college will likely be either blue or black, but it won't be both because Demir is the college. If I just go from the beginning, I'm prioritizing blue and black cards, I will end up with either a lot of blue cards or a lot of black cards most of the time. Then I can build a blue-based control deck or a black-based control deck. If I'm a blue-based control deck, I want to be in a position to splash some black removal that I end up finding. And if I'm a black-based control deck, I want to position myself to splash Serpentine Curve. The whole thing, once you're in this state of mind, makes it really easy to pivot into whatever happens to be open and to just like work with what the draft is handing you as long as they're on plan. So a nice thing about drafting this like off college pair is that it makes it kind of like easy to pivot, especially because I'm prioritizing card selection and mana fixing so highly. I'm going into a draft in this mindset that leads to an obvious failure state where I've expressed that my whole plan is based around Serpentine Curve, which leads to the obvious question, well, that's a single common. What happens if you don't find it? The same way that I don't really believe that you can, you know, force, oh, I'm going to draft an environmental sciences deck every time because sometimes you just won't see a single environmental sciences in the draft. You also won't necessarily find a Serpentine Curve in the draft. As it happens, 
Serpentine curve is a lower pick in general for people than environmental sciences. So you're slightly more likely to see it. And I'm willing to take it over basically everything. So it's likely that I'll get it. But you still need to have some kind of plan if you don't get it. The answer to what happens if you don't see Serpentine curve is you kind of have to scramble to find a way to win the game. That means looking for any strong rares that you find or biting the bullet and playing some Witherbloom Pledge Mages or any other creatures you can find that can win a game. Sometimes that can be a struggle, sometimes it's not. It really depends on what cards you're finding at higher rarities. A vast majority of the time, you will end up with cur with Serpentine Curve in your deck. It's certainly easier in my decks that have had three or four Serpentine Curves than my decks that have had one or two Serpentine Curves. One is particularly difficult. If you only have one, you really need to prioritize finding a way to set up, okay, I'm going to use this with Teach by Example, or I'm going to protect it or whatever. And the other thing that you can look for is prioritizing getting multiple copies of the summoning cards, especially Elemental Summoning and Fractal Summoning. Those are great ways to just like, okay, well, now I have my deck is all interaction. I can get ahead on cards. I can answer their threats. And I have, you know, this random mid-sized cleanup creature or, you know, on turn 11, I have a giant fractal anyway. And it's not like as good at turning the corner as Serpentine Curve, but, you know, well, now I'm not drawing Serpentine Curve. Instead, I'm drawing like this removal spell or whatever that's going to help me play this long game. And I'm still prioritizing lessons and I can still just like have these summonings and, you know, I'm drafting a control deck, but I'm just taking advantage of like the general way that Elemental Summoning and Fractal Summoning play in the format where you just get a lot of access to random reasonable sized threats as you need them. As long as your core is strong enough, as long as you have all the right removal spells and some card advantage and stuff like that, it's fairly easy to win a game eventually with the summoning cards. Or maybe, you know, you put a couple of random other actual creatures in your deck and it's fine. It's, the deck is best when you get Serpentine Groves, but it's not a definite failure if you don't have them as long as like the rest of your cards are strong. How should you be prioritizing commons to end up in this spot where you can both take advantage of Serpentine Curve, position yourself to use whatever colors open, not suffer too much if other people are in your colors, have a strong control deck that can win if you don't see curves, etc. As it happens, I've drawn up my ranking of the commons. So the top common that I'm looking for above everything else is environmental sciences. Pack one, pick one, I'll take environmental sciences over everything. Later in the draft, if I don't have an environmental sciences, I'll still take it over every comment. It used to be like if I were, you know, planning to draft Prismari, I would have to take Barian books over environmental sciences. But now that I've understood how to use all the different removal spells that are available to me, I feel comfortable just taking environmental sciences over anything. Whatever I'm passing is replaceable where the environmental sciences is. So I'll just take environmental sciences over any other common and Serpentine Curve over any common except for environmental sciences. And after those two, my priority is the good removable. So Barian Books, followed by Rise of Exodus, followed by Lash of Malice, followed by Heated Debate. And then there is one more common good removal spell in Expel. There are a couple more. There's, there's like still Expel and Mage Hunter's Onslaught. But those for me are a little bit behind the premium learn cards. So like the premium removal, then Hunt for Specimens, Cram Session, Pop Quiz, and Field Trip. Then the second tier of removal, so Expel and Mage Hunter's Onslaught. Then the rest of the good card selection and 
slightly less good lessons like curate and arcane subtraction. And if I know that I'm going to be heavy white, which is unlikely, then study break. But generally study break is going to be a lower priority because I won't be white enough for it. Those cards are kind of like the core that I'm trying to build my deck around. If any of those aren't available, then I'm looking for like a campus, archway commons, letter of acceptance, teach by example. Teach by example would be higher up, except in my experience, I can essentially always table it. I generally take take teach by example on the wheel unless i'm seeing it like pick seven or eight then i'll probably take it but early in a pack i would take like just an, like a campus or archway commons or eureka moment or something like that over teach by example and then just get the teach by example in the back half of the pack below all the fixing and all the spells that i want we get into like okay well now like some playable creatures campus guide prismari pledge mage quandrix pledge mage witherbloom pledge mage elemental masterpiece more fringe removal like Mage Duel, Professor Zumancy, Scurried Colony, Neil Thorn Drake, Study Break, Thrilling Discovery, Pilgrim of the Ages, this kind of stuff. And once we get into like the creatures and like more fringe removal and stuff, a lot of that's just going to depend on what colors my, you know, removal and stuff have put me in. What I haven't talked about yet is the, the other lessons. Lessons are basically all behind the premium removal and kind of competing with the premium learn cards. So sometimes, basically, there is some amount of balancing to do between your learn cards and your lessons. And your first of any single lesson is uh, much more important than your second copy of that lesson. There are multiple lessons that fill the same role, right? So like elemental summoning and fractal summoning, I would like to have both of them, but they also both give me, here's a big creature to learn for. And so if I have one of them, I'm going to prioritize the other one a little bit less. Similarly, with like past summoning and inkling summoning, are potentially a little bit interchangeable, where if I have one, I'll prioritize the other a little bit lower because I can now find a play to impact the board for three mana if that's what I'm looking for. A bit of a balancing act between like when to take Hunt for Specimens, Cram Session, Pop Quiz, Field Trip versus when to take your lessons and realizing like, oh, I'm pretty far behind in terms of like number of learn cards that I have. I don't have enough lessons now. I need to move lessons up my pick order versus like, okay, well, I have a lot of lessons, but I don't really have any way to get them. Or I have a lot of lessons, but I'm short on cards that I want for my main deck. Now I need to lower my prioritization of lessons and increase my prioritization of just like cards to get enough playables. The lessons move around a lot in your pick order, but in general, early in the draft, I'm taking the premium removal over them, and then I'm weighing lessons comparably to the learn cards. And valuing the lessons in the order, well, I already talked about sciences, it's better than everything else, it's not in this category. Within the other lessons, elemental summoning, first one of those, then first fractal summoning, then first pest summoning, then first intro to prophecy, then first intro to annihilation, then Inkling Summoning, then Expanded Anatomy, then Spirit Summoning. The second copy of any of those moves down somewhat, but I would say I still want my second Elemental Summoning before I want like Intro to Prophecy. It's complicated, but that's the rough ranking. You want a good mix. You do like the second copy of Elemental Summoning is really good. The second copy of Fractal Summoning is really good. The second copy of Pest Summoning is nice. The second Intro to Annihilation is pretty unlikely that you're going to want that. Second Expanded Anatomy is basically useless. Spirit summoning is basically useless all around unless you have a particularly unlikely mana base. That's kind of what's going on with like how to prioritize all the lessons. The next question on the notes is how many colors are you playing? I've mentioned that you know you're happy to like splash to play any removal you can. If I already have like a Rise of Extus, a Lash of Malice, a Serpentine Curve, and an Expel. 
do I still want heated debate? If I still want heated debate, do I also want Eureka moment? At some point, the answer is you probably need to choose what colors you're playing. I shouldn't say you need to choose what colors you're playing. I should say you need to understand how your deck's gonna work. You need to have a plan to cast all your spells. If you have an environmental sciences and a campus or two, it's very easy to be two colors with a splash, prioritize learn. Your first learn always finds environmental sciences. Your environmental sciences always finds your missing color. You're good to go. If you want you know, two colors and two splashes, two colors and three splashes, one color and four splashes, uh, some other weird mana base, you can do it, but you need to start prioritizing Letter of Acceptance, Archway Commons, second copy of Environmental Sciences. You need to be conservative about taking the extra colors until you know that you're going to be able to find a mana base that can make it work. Archway Commons, Letter of Acceptance, and second copy of Environmental Sciences are really, really good at making it possible to play four or five colors. So it's so totally fine to do that, but you have to recognize as I'm adding more colors to my deck, there's a cost to doing this, both in terms of I need to spend picks on this additional fixing, and I need to play this like archway commons or cast letter of acceptance, and that's gonna slow me down a little bit. So there's trade-off in terms of the quality of my deck to getting access to these extra cards. So I need to make sure that the cards that I'm adding in a new color are strong enough to outweigh that. So I'll generally try to be you know, somewhat conservative or realistic, play a realistic number of colors, but if I'm starting out Demir and then it's like, okay, well, I'm base blue-black, so I saw a Mortality Spear, I saw a Eureka Moment, figured it'd be really easy to splash those, got a couple of campuses in the Sol in Sultai, so maybe like two Quandrix campus, maybe a Quandrix campus and a Witherbloom campus, whatever. I have an Environmental Sciences, I'm in pretty good shape to have like a really easy blue-black splash green deck. Now I see Lorehold, the dragon. Maybe I get open it pack two, get past it second pick pack two or something. Like, okay, well, is this something I want to do? Laurel's really amazing. We're early in the draft. I have an environmental sciences. Uh, I think that there's going to be, you know, maybe this pack with the Laurel. I'm also looking at a archway commons that I can probably table. So sure, I'll take Laurel. Now I know that I'm going to work to make Laurel work. I'm not planning to give up any colors. So now, since I know that I'm working to make five colors work, I'm gonna prioritize like Letter of Acceptance, Archway Commons, and now I can also just freely take Expels, freely take Heated Debates, and it just all works. There has to be a reason that you wanna make it work. So th there's not a single answer to how many colors should you be. It's all about, you know, cost-benefit analysis on adding extra colors to your deck based on what you already have and what you're giving up. And the opportunity cost of the picks to enable it versus like opportunity gains from the other picks that it enables. Like the work that you do to support white mana now lets you play Expel, but also sometimes this, like I've had some versions of Demir that are actually Silver Quill, splashing blue, splashing everything else, where I'm base uh, black-white, say I got, you know, an early closing statement, Rise of Exodus and stuff, and I find my, once I'm heavy enough white, Pilgrim of the Ages becomes a really good card. That's what I'm getting at here. Pilgrim of the Ages is a fantastic control card. It's a great blocker. It helps you hit your land drops. You're getting to the late game where it's like this recursive threat slash recursive blocker. And once you're doing Pilgrim of the Ages, it pairs really, really well with Thrilling Discovery, which is a great way to like power up Serpentine Curve, dig really deep to find your stuff. But obviously saying, oh, Thrilling Discovery is a priority in my Demir deck is kind of crazy. It's a two-mana red-white card, but there are some versions of this deck that get to a point where they can use Thrilling Discovery sometimes while playing 
blue and black cards, sometimes in large numbers. I guess this is to say you can get pretty funky with it. <laughs> you want to keep in mind all the different ways that you can get value in unexpected places. So like an example of that would be one of my early versions of this deck. You know, I talked about how you want to have this plan for when your opponent answers your serpentine curve, why doesn't that ruin your game plan? Oh, well, I have a snakeskin veil and I protect my serpentine curve, or I have a negate and I stop them from answering it. Another card that works in that role is Tend the Pests. So you play your Serpentine Curve, your opponent goes to kill it, you tend the pests, and now you have like eight 1-1s. And the eight 1-1s are good enough to stop your opponent from killing you, turn the corner, buy time for you to find another curve, whatever. I had a deck that was doing this tend the pest thing, but I also had a couple of cram sessions. So then I also played Fortifying Draft. And now I had this combo where I could play cram session, gain four life, cast Fortifying Draft, green instant gain two life, and then give a creature plus X plus X where X is the amount of life you've gained this turn. I could play that on, say, even just like a pest that I made from Hunt for Specimens or from Pest Summoning after playing a cram session. Now I turn that 1-1 one, one into a 7-7, seven, seven, and then I tend the pest to that 7-7. Seven, seven. And so I like built this like really weird convoluted combo into my deck to try to win the game. And I was able to like make that happen because I also had like Professor's Warning and Serpentine Curve and Archmage Emeritus. And my game plan was I'm going to play Archmage Emeritus and protect it and then draw most of my deck. But my deck doesn't have any way to kill my opponent in it. So I'm going to like set up this ridiculous combo to tend the pest on a creature that I've pumped a whole bunch and make a bunch of pests. That's the example of the kind of hoops that you end up jumping through when you're creatively finding solutions to the, well, what if I don't have like a serpent enough serpentine curves to win the game? That's what's going on with this near creatureless multicolor rooted in blue-black control deck that is the way that I've been approaching this format for most last week that I found a lot of success with. I think that it's valid to just go into every draft coming at it from this mindset where like I'm not forcing Demir, I'm drafting whatever control cards are available. It's not very compatible with drafting lore hold cards early. But basically any other card that I start a draft with, I'm figuring out how to work it into this mindset and work it into this game plan. That covers my lecture on this to the best of my ability. So now it's time to open this up to questions from chat here on twitch.tv slash Samuel H. Black. For anyone who is listening to this later on and not in chat, I record on this channel live every week, Wednesdays at eight. Tune in to ask questions here. I wanna take a moment to thank the new patrons to Drafting Archetypes over at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes. Thank you very much to Yvette, Andrew, Texts, Ron, uh, David, Ron, Will, Raideray, David, and Casey. Appreciate the support. For anyone who is not over already a patron there, go over to patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes. Check the benefits that we offer and the plans available and see if any of that appeals to you. It's not a commitment to check it out. Go look, see what's going on. Keep forgetting to mention this. I do intend to remind people at the beginning of each episode. For any patrons who like to follow along, my notes for this episode are already up there. It's a spreadsheet where I've kind of like laid out my script for what stuff I wanted to talk about, as well as the ranking of my common of uh, commons and uh, the skeleton for the deck. So if you're a patron over there, you can go to patreon.com, find the post where I posted these notes and follow along with uh, the discussion here. 
So anyway, as for questions from the chat, where in the order Inkling Summoning was, I may have said it quickly or glossed over it. I have it uh, behind Annihilation, above Expanded Anatomy. Inkling Summoning is primarily strong as a threat. It's nice to be able to block flyers with it, but I've found Pest Summoning to be my like go-to three-mana stabilization lesson. And then if I have a past summoning, it's not as important to find uh, the Inkling summoning, so I'd prioritize Prophecy and Annihilation over it. If I have those bases covered, then I do like to have the Inkling summoning to be able to block flyers. Next question is, what about this archetype makes it so strong in the format? Obviously tried to cover that in terms of how I think that it's better positioned than Prismari in terms of having access to the removal that Prismari lacks that cover those bases. I would say a lot of it is just, I mean, a combination between it's really good at taking advantage of the fundamental strengths of the like lesson and learning dynamics in general in the format that are really powerful. Also, Serpentine Curve is a broken common to have access to when supported in this way. It's just much stronger than things that other people can do. The removal in this format is very powerful. So positioning yourself in a place to like really take advantage of that leads to a really strong deck. Uh, if you have like Lashmalis to answer your opponent's like cheap flyers with Serpentine Curve to invalidate most of most common creatures, and then like Rise of Exodus type uh, hard answers to bombs or bookworms or whatever, it's just a very robust strategy. Next question, how do you decide when to draft or not draft this deck, or are you forcing it from the start? So the way that I have been doing it is just approaching every draft with an expectation that this is probably where I'm going to end up. There are things that can change that. If I open Sparring Regiment, I would change my mind. I would just draft Sparring Regiment deck instead. If you see really strong cards in, that put you in a different direction, by all means, you know, go that direction. I have found that without some kind of like narrow, powerful card that says do this other thing instead, this is a good basic plan to follow. And then to be in a position to pivot into something else, you know, if I start by saying, OK, well, I'm going to take, you know, some lessons really high and some removal really high. And then I see a fifth pick Killian, I can say, OK, I guess I'm drafting Silvercool this draft. So part of the strength that I talked about of like having this mentality early on, especially where you're prioritizing learn cards and lessons, learn cards and lessons are going to be good wherever you end up. So. I find it really easy to start here and then pivot into something else if I find something else that's open. Basically, the decision is less when do you do this and when do you, it more when do you not do this. You start here and then when the table says, hey, you know, if you're willing to draft Quandrix instead, here's a great Quandrix deck for you. You say, okay, okay, I'll take this broken Quandrix card that you passed seventh and now I'm Quandrix instead and I can work with that. And so a lot of this just came out of trying to maintain maximum flexibility early in a draft. And then just like, well, what do you do if there isn't some obvious open lane that you can go into? Oh, well, you just stay flexible forever and you just take removal spells and lessons forever. And then that's just your deck. Okay, so the, the question is, do you think double, color, uh, double colored college cards, um, so any gold card, uh, hurt allied colored archetypes? So like, yes, clearly the fact that there are gold cards that you don't have access to makes it harder to draft an allied colored archetype. There are simply fewer cards available to you. Which is why it's really important in Demir to position yourself to Splash, which is why I prioritize environmental sciences over everything else, and why I don't generally expect that I'm going to end up blue-black with no Splash, because there simply aren't enough cards that I want in blue and black. The only black cards that I want are Lash of Malice, Rise of Exodus, Cram Session, Hunt for Specimens, Mage Hunter's Onslaught, 
sometimes I'm willing to play like a professor's warning or the two, three flyer that drains them or like a Witherbloom pledge mage or something. But really there are five commons that I want. Similarly in blue, I only want the spells. I only want Barian books, pop quiz, curate, serpentine curve, teach by example. Maybe I can play like Quandrix pledge mage, Prismari pledge mage. I think there might be like one other that I'm missing. If there are only like you know, under 15 commons in the two colors that I'm playing that I actually want to put in my deck, I can't expect that I'm going to be able to reliably build a deck out of only those 15 commons. The fact that you don't have access to as many playables would hurt the archetype, except because the cards that I'm prioritizing, Hunt for Specimens, Cram Session, Curate, Pop Quiz, are so good at letting you splash, it's just effortless. And so I have like a lot of, you know, secret cards, like all these cards that that are uncastable are actually castable. And by all the cards that are uncastable, I mean literally everything. I can just cast whatever I want because I'm prioritizing fixing. I know that I'm going to have a lot of islands and swamps in my deck, and those islands and swamps are going to give me access to cards that give me access to the color of mana that I need. Next question. You said that lore hold cards are not compatible with this archetype, but what do you think of return pass color specifically? I said it's hard to draft this deck when you're starting with a lore hold card. I did also talk about how this archetype can make use of thrilling discovery. Return pass color is a hard splash because it's not just I need red and white, but I also need an additional red or white. And so you do really need red or white to be a real color most of the time, but it is strong and I have had plenty of decks in this space that use return pass color. Especially if you can get two return pass colors, that can be like a serviceable end game in drafts where like you don't find a serpentine curve. Return pass color is especially good in the versions of this deck that are making use of Pilgrim of the Ages. How well do you think counterspells fit into this archetype? So I talked about how counterspells are a priority in terms of like building my game plan around I'm going to play Serpentine Curve and then I'm going to use a counterspell to protect it. So obviously I think they fit in pretty well. I want to have them. I think my deck's quite a bit better if it has like one counterspell rather than zero counterspells. As far as how highly I prioritize negate and test of talents while I'm drafting, I would say behind the premium removal around the summonings and learn cards, negate and test of talents are really good cards. I don't like whirlwind denial so much because I'm planning to play a really long game and I'm worried about it going dead, but negate and test of talents are very good. Next question, is three elemental masterpiece too many if you have one serpentine curve? So presumably by if you have one serpentine curve, what we're saying is you're a little bit light on finishers. Are you happy to play three elemental masterpieces to round out your finishers and make sure that you can uh, win a game? Three elemental masterpieces is going to make your deck a little bit top heavy, but obviously you can potentially discard them for a treasure, especially if you draw two, you can discard one for a treasure to like cash the other one earlier or whatever. The answer here really depends on like the rest of your deck and your curve and your infrastructure. It's a lot better to play Elemental Masterpiece in large numbers if you have stuff like uh, Eureka Moment, Letter of Acceptance that are naturally helping you like ramp and cast it earlier, or even if you just have Pilgrim of the Ages that's helping to make your land drops. Obviously, these are cards that are in colors that are not the colors of Elemental Masterpiece, so you need to make sure that all your mana is working for doing this. But I would say that there are versions of this deck that would be reasonably happy to play three seven drops and elemental masterpiece is a fine way to end the game, which is to say there are some decks where I would want three, but in general, there are significant diminishing returns on additional elemental, ma elemental masterpieces. And I would generally prefer to find a better way to win the game than just having more copies of elemental masterpiece beyond the first or second. I would prefer to just have more good summonings or something like that such that I don't need the third one. 
Next question, would you play Team Paint slash Zephyr Boots in this archetype? No, I would not. There's the argument that like this archetype can struggle with flyers and Zephyr Boots can let your things do that. And Team Pennant can make it a lot easier to like win through blockers or give your guys vigilance so they can block also. That's not the right way to go about building a control deck. You want to just like play answers to their stuff instead and not try to build fragile combos. Yes, Letter of Acceptance is a card that I will play in this deck if it's needed to make my mana and curve work. Basically, I'm looking for Letter if I'm playing four or more colors and I'm generally trying to avoid it in three or fewer. How many negate effects would I ideally play in this deck? I would say anywhere from one to three is ideal. Negate and Test of Talents are just strong cards. It's not like I want exactly one and then I'm done or something. This is a good piece of interaction. I can treat it kind of like a removal spell. I'm not sure if the fourth would be good or bad. I know that it's better to have them than not and that multiple copies are fine. Next question. If you draft and can cast Rutha, do you still want Teach by Example? So how much I want Teach by Example is a function of how many Serpentine Curves I have. If I only have one Serpentine Curve, I still probably want Teach by Example because I want because I'm worried about being able to win with only one teach with only one Serpentine Curve. And then if I have more Serpentine Curves, Teach gets better. I only really want multiple copies of Teach if I have a lot of Serpentine Curves. Like, you know, if I have like three Serpentine Curves, then I might want a second copy of Teach. And Rutha doesn't really interact with that very much. Don't get me wrong. I'm very, very happy to play Rutha. Rutha is a great card for the deck. Rutha is a bomb. I want to take Rutha. I want to make it work. And it does give me another way to copy the curves. But also you don't always draw Rutha and I want to build my deck to do the thing when I don't have Rutha. I, Rutha can win. The, Rutha does Rutha things when I draw it and when it lives and when it works. It usually lives because I usually don't let it die. But the like teach by example plus uh, serpentine curve combo is still just like a strong thing to do that I would like access to when I don't draw Rutha. Those things aren't really competing in my mind. Next question. How often does this deck basically just like fail because the packs don't cooperate? I think that it's kind of like drafting any any other archetype, where if you refuse to pivot out of it when it's not there because other people are taking the cards you want or whatever, you're going to end up with a bad deck. But I'm not really worried about like, oh, I'm just committing to this and some, some portion of the time it's not going to be there and I'm going to lose. I'm starting with a plan that prioritizes flexibility and preparing to shift into something else if it's clear that this isn't open and something else is. So I, I think that it's just like a robust and safe plan. I think the answer to like how often you end up with like an unplayable deck after you've started doing this is only when you mess up. What if you don't get your lessons during the draft, but you get your learn spells? I mean, that's on you. There is a lesson card in every pack. If you prioritize them, you will get them. If I have a lot of learn cards and not enough lessons, I just increase the amount that I'm prioritizing lessons while I'm drafting. The next question, is Spell Satchel a trap, even in a deck with three or fewer creatures like the deck I'm describing? No, I actually kind of like Spell Satchel. It's not a high priority, but I'm happy to play one or two. When everything you cast puts a counter on it, it's basically just like a mana rock. It, like it's you, you can just tap it for mana freely because you're casting at least one spell a turn that's putting a counter on it. Then when you don't need to tap it or when you cast multiple spells, it accumulates more counters and then it like gives you this card draw thing. It's a pretty good card. It's not a necessary component of the deck, so I don't prioritize it as highly as like the important infrastructure card. So it's not as important as like premium removal, good summonings, good lessons, but it's, you know, in the space of like, well, stuff to round out the deck, potential creatures, mana fixing, off color, like Eureka moment type stuff. Basically, 
I will often like get it basically for free because no one else wants it. And I will usually play it if I have it. Next question is negate versus test of talents. So negate has like better stats than test of talents. Test of talents still largely feels better to me. I had to reevaluate when I've lost to rares that negate doesn't counter the or that negate counters the test of talents doesn't while holding a test of talents. But I think that information is so valuable with this deck, and I think this deck is like relatively good against the cards that negate hits that test doesn't, such that I still kind of think test is better, but they're really, really, really close. Next question is about reconstruct history anticipating that it's good, particularly if you have letters. Reconstruct History is solid. I think it's comparable to Eureka Moment. It's a sorcery, and they're, they both usually give you two cards. Eureka Moment's an instant and lets you make an extra land drop, where Reconstruct History gives you two cards of your choice, which is quite a bit better than just two cards from the top of your deck. But Reconstruct History is also a lot harder to cast. It's uh, red and white instead of blue and another color. So basically, I would say, you know, Reconstruct History is rarely a priority, but if I'm putting red and white cards in my deck for other reasons, then I'm, you know, happy enough to play it. But it's not like, oh, I need to, like, work to make Reconstruct History work because it's some kind of bomb. I, I think it's just, like, fine Eureka Moment power level kind of card. What's my opinion of Pillar Drop Warden? Pillar Drop Warden is a an acceptable creature to play if you are looking for, like, an additional blocker and putting red mana in your deck anyway. It's nothing special. It's in the space of basically any creature. I mean, any non like Rutha or similar bomb. It is a common creature. It's probably a little bit worse than something like Scurried Colony or Needlethorn Drake, worse than Professor of Zoomancy, but it's not an embarrassing card to have in your deck. Next question is Campus Guide. I think Campus Guide is a completely functional two drop if you are playing four or more colors, or if you are three colors and have not found in environmental sciences. Basically, if your mana needs help, it's fine to play it as a two drop. There are spots where I'd be willing to play it like over Prismary Pledge Mage or something if I have nine or fewer lands that tap to cast Prismary Pledge Mage such that some portion of the time I won't be able to and my mana is a little stretched such that I'll value the fixing. Not a priority. I'd prefer to fix my mana in some other way, but it's serviceable. What uncommons am I taking before environmental sciences? Broadly speaking, you can just like look on 17 lands and look at the and it'll be a lot of the uncommons that have win rates over 60%. So that's around the line. Next question is about a deck that I had where I played two Cogwork Archivists. I had one Serpentine Curve in that deck and I was generally short on playables. Um, so I played two Archivists just to make sure that I wouldn't like deck myself and could win a game. There was one game that I played where I ended up like completely exhausting my entire library with two Cogwork Archivists in play and a spell satchel, and I generated a spot where I could, at instant speed, draw whatever card I wanted. And I had a snakeskin veil that I could use in that spot to protect the Archivists. And it was a very sweet way to end a game. But this is about, like, is that something I'm trying to do? No. I would greatly prefer to just kill my opponent quickly with Serpentine Curve. That was more of a, all right, well, I need to find some way to make this, like, deck that has a good control plan but can't really win a game not lose by running out of cards in general cogwork archivist is like on the bottom end of cards i'm willing to put in the deck uh, next question this deck seems to hinge greatly on environmental sciences how would you feel if you did not get one and how might you adapt i would try to limit myself to three colors most of the time and i would very highly prioritize 
campuses and potentially letter of acceptance and archway commons if I have to, then I feel fine about it. Environmental sciences makes it easier to play removal spells from extra colors, but you know your infrastructure with like a bunch of curates and uh, learn cards just makes it really easy to make your mana work regardless. And worst case scenario, you know if I have some like uncastable splash card, I can always discard it to draw with, with the learn cards rather. I don't think environmental sciences is like make or break for this deck, but it is transformative in terms of what kind of like options it gives you. The next question is how many non-creatures minimum for satchel? I think of it more as what's the maximum number of creatures, which I guess is the same question. And the answer is you need to be very extreme. I don't know exactly how extreme, but like when in doubt, don't play Satchel. I'm saying I have had good experiences with Satchel in my decks that have fewer than five creatures. If I had more than that, I probably wouldn't want it. It looks like that's all the questions that we have at the moment. I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you everyone for listening, however you are listening. They are available on YouTube or whatever podcast app you prefer. If you are listening to this in some other form, those other things are available. Uh, so, you know, you, you have options on consuming this in whatever way suits your schedule and situation best. Uh, most of you are probably aware, but for anyone who isn't, I do offer personalized coaching. If you feel like you're learning a lot from how I think about approach and discuss the game, I can tailor my analysis in a much more personalized way when I'm working one-on-one -on -one with somebody. I've also discovered today that it's uh, remarkably easy to use 17 lands replay function to just like skim really quickly through games that you've played to identify spots where you have potential leaks in your game, talk about uh, mistakes that I identified that you might not have noticed, talk about why another line might have been different or how that could have cost you. If you're interested in working with me on gameplay, drafting, or anything else, uh, reach out to me on Discord or Twitter or Twitch, and we can arrange uh, some private coaching of some sort. And uh, that is the last thing that I have to tell you about today. Thank you again, everybody, for tuning in, and we will be back next week with another archetype as determined by the patrons.